You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Melting Monday, is that what they called it this morning? Um, we were worried that we wouldn't have an audience for this evening, and of course we shouldn't have worried at all, because each of these events has attracted absolutely fabulous uh, uh, audiences, so you're all very welcome indeed. My name's Jane Olmeyer, I'm the Director of the Trinity Long Room Hub. Uh, uh, for those of you who are coming for the first time, it's our research institute in the arts and humanities. We do three things in here. We celebrate the excellence of the arts and humanities, and anybody who follows the global rankings will have seen that, yet again, the arts and humanities at Trinity are the most highly ranked faculty area, not just in in Trinity, but in Ireland. Uh, And this, of course, includes areas like languages, history, uh, uh, English, uh, and classics. So that's the first thing we do. The second thing we do is promote multi and interdisciplinarity. And as we're going to hear this evening, it's a conversation across disciplines. Um, we've got historians, art historians, um, and uh, uh, literary scholars. Um, the third thing we do is public humanities. And this whole series, uh, uh, Utopia and Dystopia, has been very much part of that public humanities program. Um, the lectures have been extremely well attended. Uh, and we podcast absolutely everything. So if you've missed some of the earlier lectures, uh, uh, please um, uh, check our website uh, and you can listen to uh, any of them. Tonight, though, is the final wrap-up session. And before I hand over uh, to my uh, colleague, John Horn, who's going to be our MC and our chair for the evening, I would just like to thank um, colleagues who've been so supportive in organising this whole uh, uh, series, uh, Sarah Smith, uh, Justin uh, Doherty, uh, but especially um, uh, John Horn and Balaj uh, Apoor. And I think, Arisia, you were also in the mix in terms of helping to make it all happen. Because these events don't happen without academic leadership, but also with my own team here uh, in the hub uh, who uh, uh, ensure everything runs so smoothly. I'm re- really extraordinarily grateful uh, to you all. Um, and then I want to make a plug for an event that isn't part of the series, but I think will interest those of you who have enjoyed these lectures. And it's actually an event organised by Orissia, which is called War and Revolution, uh, Framing 100 Years of Cultural Opposition in uh, Ukraine. Um, And it's an exhibition uh, that we're launching on the 9th of April at 6.30 here in the Hub. Um, And the exhibition aims to reframe the conversation about wars in the region, past and present, by focusing on the long-standing struggle of Ukrainians um, uh, to reform and reinvigorate uh, Soviet socialism from within. Um, I think uh, the exhibition of photographs, I've seen some of them, they're extraordinarily powerful. And Larissa, you may actually say something about this in in your comments uh, as well so put that in your diaries 9th of april 6 30 obviously you're on our mailing list uh, uh, and we'll also uh, notify you by uh, uh, email so without uh, further ado if i could ask you to put your mobile phones to silent but feel free to tweet any of you who are tweeters uh, using uh, the hashtag what is it hub matters what's for hashtag names yeah, hashtag Hub Matters. Um, 
uh, and uh, uh, invite you to welcome our amazing panel this evening uh, and our Master of Ceremonies and Chair John Horne. So John, over to you. Well, thank you very much, Jane, for the um, in introduction and welcome everybody to this um, culmination of our series, a Utopia, Dystopia, the Legacy of the Russian Revolution, a hundred years on. And I would also just like to add my own thanks um, to the Trinity Long Room Hub for organizing this uh, uh, public humanities event, and to Jane Olmai in particular, and also especially to Katrina Curtis and, 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 and the team here at the, at the Hub, who uh, uh, have done and continue to do a very fine job um, in organizing uh, humanities within the university and for the public. So what we've envisaged this evening as uh, is a kind of panel discussion come debate. And we hope very much that you, the audience, will join in this debate. Um, I will just say some introductory remarks for six or seven minutes, and then I'm going to ask our panelists uh, to each of them address the aspects, aspects that they want to of how the Russian Revolution of 1917 looks a hundred years on, what was significant about it then, viewed from now, what is still significant about it today. And we will start with uh, Dr. Balash Apoor on my right, um, who is Assistant Professor in European Studies in uh, uh, TCD and one of the um, organizers of this series. Um, Balash's research focuses on the history of Central and Eastern Europe in the 19th and 20th centuries and the history of communism in particular, and he has a special interest in the rituals of Soviet-type societies, and indeed has just published uh, a splendid book on the personality cult in uh, 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 communist Hungary after the Second World War. Uh, following him will be Orisia Kulik, whom Jane has already mentioned, who is uh, a research fellow in our School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultural Studies, and she's working on a, a Horizon 2020, a European-funded project, a courage project, um, which explores the cultural heritage of dissent in former socialist countries, and she is particularly concerned uh, with the Ukraine and Ukrainian emigre um, uh, communities. So she will speak second. She'll be followed by Dr. Uh, Molly Pucci. Molly is an assistant professor in 20th century. She's sitting next to, to, to in the middle there, next to Alicia. <laughs> Molly is assistant professor in 20th century European history in Trinity, and her research interests include the history of communism, legal history, and the history of policing in 20th century Europe. And she's working on a book which will um, be based on, related to a PhD from Stanford, which examines the creation of communist secret police institutions in Czechoslovakia, Poland, and Eastern Germany in the period following the Second World War. So the particularities of the, of the communist-style state, if you will, and especially the, the police um, within that in post-45 of what we might call the Soviet Empire. And uh, last, but by no means least, um, sitting next to Balash, Judith Devlin, who is Professor of History in UCD, and her research interests include modern Russia, its contemporary history, its political culture, and latterly, the culture, the politics, and uh, of society in the Stalin era, era. And her recent research has included work on film history, media history, cultural politics, and reception uh, particularly at the moment 
uh, in relation to the, the cult of Stalin. So that very nicely poses for us the question of what the relationship of the whole Stalin phenomenon is to the revolution a hundred years ago. Uh, as Jane has mentioned, the lectures are um, a podcast, so you can, or rather, the, the, our sessions are podcasts, so you can come back to any of them that you like. Uh, just within the four or five minutes that remain for me, I want to just briefly remind people of the, the interest of and the sequence of um, talks that we've had in this series, which began with a remarkable read, uh, evening. I couldn't be present, but I precisely listened to it on, on podcast. Um, of uh, readings um, uh, chaired by Sarah Smith um, of the Trinity um, uh, Department of Russian and Slavonic Studies. How fortunate we are to have the only department of Russian and Slavonic Studies in the, in the, in, 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 in the entire 32 counties. And uh, that is something um, whose importance just, I think, grows more and more every day. Sarah's here this evening. So um, a, a wonderful opening session on literary responses to the uh, Russian Revolution. And listening to that on the podcast, and it just reminded me, first of all, of the extraordinary excitement and proliferation of events in 1917 itself, because many of the readings that evening were to do with, with the February Revolution, not just the October Revolution. And of course, retrospectively, for the Bolsheviks, and this is a point that we've talked about in this series, often the February Revolution for people seemed to be the real revolution. And so the, the Bolsheviks had the, 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 the question subsequently how to create the image, how to forge the image of the October Revolution, their takeover, as having been the real revolution. And yet, of course, we only have to think of Russian literature um, uh, uh, in, in all its um, complexity and magnificence during the Soviet period. Um, from the, the anguished poems of Akhmatova caught up in the, um, uh, the sequence of the revolutionary events and its fallout under Stalin, um, the uh, uh, banned novels, um, uh, 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 Boris Pasternak's um, Dr. Zhivago about the revolution itself, Solzhenitsyn's extraordinary novel cycle about the, the First World War and the revolution, but beginning with his own personal testimony about the camps. Quite simply, the literary witnesses and the literary rendering in all its complexity of the revolution of 1917 and its consequences is indication itself that this is an enormous world um, event. Uh, then Dr. James Ryan from the University of Cardiff looked at Lenin and Leninism, the, the, the political creed, what was at issue in precisely the October Revolution or November Revolution, depending on the calendar. In other words, that, that Bolshevik turn within a larger revolutionary process and what the consequences of that were, something that was taken up by uh, Steve Smith, Professor Stephen Smith from Oxford on the 6th of December, when he looked at the Russian Revolution in global perspective and pondered for us, really, about this, this paradox that a, a, a revolution, that October Revolution, whose, whose creed, whose aims were all to do with class and Marxist and a class-based analysis of history, actually turned out to have relatively little, relatively little purchase on radical and working class movements elsewhere in Europe did not multiply into the world socialist class revolution, that permanent revolution that Trotsky and then Lenin had envisaged, but did, and this was his point in his lecture, did prove enormously successful in the colonial world and in the processes of decolonization. And so in that sense, there was, uh, and this was 
evident right from the start, 1920, 1921, that there was an echo um, in the what later became, in the Cold War, the Third World. And, and I think in some respects, it's, it's still there uh, uh, today. So an interesting paradox there, that it wasn't in the heartlands of the Industrial Revolution, but actually in the colonial sphere, um, that Bolshevism, including China, that the Bolshevik Revolution had a particular impact. On the 22nd of January, uh, Emma O'Connor from the University of Ulster um, uh, told us about, and, uh, and brought it right back home, uh, uh, told us about the relationship between the Irish left and the Bolshevik Revolution in particular. Extraordinary things came out of his talk. I mean, that meeting in, in my mind, the Mansion House in 1918 on the Bolshevik Revolution, 10,000 people turn out for this meeting. So that in these parallel worlds of very different kinds of revolution, the Irish Revolution and the Russian Revolution, there was an extraordinary interest in certain quarters in Ireland in what was going on in Russia. Um, and there was also considerable interest in Russia in what had occurred in Ireland, the first break, as it were, in, from the Bolshevik point of view, the imperialist um, uh, 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 carapace had cracked in the Easter um, Rising in 1916, although it was far from being a socialist revolution. And Emmett, I think, tracked for us the ways in which what Roy Foster has called the vivid faces, those extraordinary multiple forms of radicalism that were there in the Irish Revolution from 1916 to the early 1920s, often overlapped with a deep interest in and perceived relevance of the Russian Revolution for Ireland. But as the essentially conservative nature of the Irish Revolution played out in the 1920s, that interest in Russia gravitated to a kind of socialist and republican left as the Labour Party restabilized towards the centre and demarcated itself against um, uh, 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 Bolshevism. But nonetheless, that pairing, that interaction between Ireland and Irish revolutionary potential and Bolshevism continued. It continued right the way through the Cold War, so that the archives of um, the uh, 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 term in particular in Moscow are an extraordinarily interesting source and, and an important source for finding out about certain aspects of Ireland. Justin Doherty, um, in, on the 22nd of uh, January, um, sorry, the 14th of February, in a, a wonderful paper, Chaos to Conformity, traced for us the anniversary commemorations of the October Revolution in art and film uh, in the first decade, through really until the late 1920s. And there again, well, we've just get, got a sense, in terms of our title, of the utopia, the utopian dimension, the sense to which so many of those involved in the Russian Revolution, including in the Bolshevik Revolution, had the sense that they were making the world anew, and that in art and in cinema, they would construct it anew, that there was an aesthetic project there. Um, which turned out very differently subsequently, but that first generation, uh, uh, there the, the was this very powerful element of utopianism. And then that brings us to our, um, uh, 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 our panel discussion and our debate um, uh, this evening. And I would simply conclude with, I think with this kind of you know, very broad historical observation that history is, and it's an elementary point, but history is a moving relationship with the past. And by that I don't mean that you can eternally rewrite the story any way you want. You can't. There are facts, there are documents which we discover, which, which historians and others analyze, and, and those shape what can be said. Um, but in our attempts to take a, an event in the past, an episode, the Russian Revolution, to understand the people involved, 
we have a kind of a subsequent knowledge, we have a retrospective knowledge that we apply to understand. And yet at the same time, we have to restore to those contemporary actors their own understanding of the world that they inhabited. It's what I call a kind of triangulation, but the point is that we, looking back at that past, aren't fixed. It's a moving relationship through time, because we, as contemporaries looking back to the Russian Revolution, are constantly evolving. And so how we write that story, how we tell it, um, the multiple ways in which we do that, are dependent on who we are, when we are, and where we are. And I just simply want to say that I think in this regard, we all of us inhabit a post-1989 world. With 1989, the end of the Cold War, the end of the communist experiment, uh, for better or for worse, certainly by 1990, 1991, the disintegration of the Soviet Union itself, we live in a post-Soviet world. The experiment is over. The utopia, whatever it might have been, is gone. But was it dystopia? That's something which we can argue about. Um, but as we look back, we do so from the point of view of a time, a post-1989 world, in which not only is this now definitively in the past, but in a sense, the future which the Russian Revolution created, that utopian future, is also in the past. And I would submit that after 1989, the time sphere that we live in is one which is not predicated on the future, which is not predicated on these great events which would produce a transformed future which would redeem us all. It's fundamentally a religious model. Fascism had that in its own way, so did communism. We live in a world which is after that. We live in a much more humdrum world, much more tied up with the present, indeed much more turned to the past, I think, than was the world before 1989. But of course, how that affects our view of the Russian Revolution depends on where we are. Are we in the former Soviet Union? And there there's the wonderful writings by Svetlana Alexievich, Nobel uh, Literary Prize winner um, last year, um, who, uh, 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 as it were, investigates how people in the former Soviet Union now interpret that past, makes us understand, feel, for example, the importance of the Khrushchev apartments, this first time when you got a little bit of private space in the, in the building programs after the Second World War, which meant that not everything was collected. The extraordinary fact that this was more than a lifetime for older people. The, it was more than a lifetime, 75 years or whatever it was of the, of, the, of the Soviet period. And therefore, in particular, with the 27 million war dead of the Second World War, it was the history of the entire society which was bound up in this. Very different, I imagine, from the perspective now from Eastern Europe, in which this was both imposed from outside, internalized by some, lasted 44 years, definitely only half a lifetime, not a complete lifetime, lifetime, lifetime. for everybody who lived through it, or many who lived through it, there was a before. And therefore, a very different kind of relationship to that Soviet past and what it meant. Or in the West, or the former Third World, where we didn't have any communist governments at all. But the communist idea was powerful for many as precisely a utopia, an ideology, an image, a little political family, the importance of the communist parties of that period. Where is it now? Vittorio Foa, the Italian left-wing socialist and thinker and very much an anti-communist, wrote an extraordinary book about six or seven years ago called <laughs> Il Silenzio dei Comunisti, The Silence of the Communists. What did these Western communists now think about that past and vanished utopia? Did they think that it was indeed a dystopia of which they were ashamed? Did they think it was a wonderful idea still, which somehow just had been badly applied? And those questions, I would suggest, are still swirling around 
in the politics of the, um, of the West, in the five-star movement's uh, election results in Italy this morning, for example. In that sense, the Soviet Union is like the great empires, the British and the French Empire, great, I simply mean in terms of big. <laughs> That's to say, these are black holes in temporal terms for us. They're black holes they've got, but like stellar black holes, all sorts of material continues to swirl around them. They still attract an extraordinarily powerful force on us. We're still, they still shape our lives in many ways. And in order to discuss these questions amongst themselves and with you, I can't think of a more qualified panel. And so I'd now like to um, ask Spanish to come and uh, give us our first um, set of comments. Spanish, over to you. introduction for the very kind words uh, uh, indeed. Um, I would like to keep uh, this very general and very broad and I would uh, mostly talk about two notions, uh, two concepts, um, the, uh, the concept of uh, revolution actually, uh, and the notion of legacy. Uh, I chose those two concepts because I thought uh, that at the very end of a long uh, lecture series and, and indeed incredibly fascinating lecture series about the Russian Revolution I think it's time to address the legacy of the Russian Revolution as well, even though it will have to be brief and it will have to remain at a, at a conceptual level. But uh, the notion of historical legacy also happens to be uh, a concept that I have recently became interested in, partly because I was looking for a de definition for, for a book I'm uh, editing or co-editing, and it is, uh, it is shocking that there are barely any uh, economic definitions of the notion of historical legacy. It is an incredibly oft-used term. It, it uh, pops up in academic discourse. Uh, it's all over the place, but there are very few rigid and systematic de definitions of the notion. So that, that's, uh, that's, of course, it's just a footnote, but that's also part of my recent interest. So historical legacy and uh, its relationship uh, uh, to the notion of revolution um, as, uh, the, or are the, as, as the main thing that, that I'm going to talk about. So I'm going to talk about the relationship between revolution and the legacy and revolution as, uh, as historical uh, legacy. So as I, uh, I mentioned, historical legacy, of course, it refers to a long-term uh, process. It is a very uh, um, commonly used term, but it is actually uh, a rarely defined uh, concept and I did struggle uh, find to actually find a solid economic <laughs> definition of the term. There are one or two out there uh, by now, though. In contrast, revolution, um, uh, which of course denotes a sequence of events taking place uh, in a short period of time, um, it has many definitions, uh, of course, um, and I, I, I won't even uh, try to. An alternative definition here myself. I brought one definition today, or more like an approach to the notion of revolution today, and that's the approach um, um, of um, advocated by Archie Brown, uh, the, uh, uh, the prominent political scientist, uh, in his um, fascinating book called The Myth of the Strong Leader. Uh, that's uh, an approach or definition that is fairly pessimistic. Uh, and it basically holds that revolutions are merely episodes of egalitarianism separating two authoritarian regimes from each other uh, in time. 
Uh, of course, the most um, obvious examples could be the French or the Russian revolutions. In the, in the French case, that was the monarchy, which was brought down by the revolution, but that was followed by the Napoleonic episode and, of course, the restoration of the monarchy. So authoritarianism, revolution, authoritarianism. In the Russian case, um, of course, this, uh, um, this, is, this is equally well known. Tsarism and the Tsarist regime was brought down by the Federal Revolution, which was followed by the establishment of another authoritarian regime, an authoritarian regime of a different kind, but authoritarian nonetheless, and that was the dictatorship of the proletariat. So this is just two obvious examples. So we may or may not agree uh, with Archie Brown, but what he does um, in, uh, in this revolution is, is that he highlights the transitory and ephemeral aspects of revolutions. And that's one of the most important uh, points that I'd like to um, uh, underline or highlight today. So revolutions are brief, in other words, uh, to put it quite simply. They're brief and, and tend to be transitory, but uh, they uh, could certainly have an immense impact um, and lead to remarkable uh, and indeed monumental social transformations. So the point I'd like to make here is the legacies of revolutions are often more monumental than the events themselves. And I think we cannot really find a better example to illustrate that than, than the Bolshevik Revolution, the Bolshevik takeover of October 1917. It was quite famously a very small-scale event, but arguably the consequences of that takeover were monumental uh, and had a global impact. So there is this beautiful uh, contrast between a small-scale event and, and a monumental, uh, indeed, um, uh, global legacy of, of, of the events. Um, but uh, when we're trying to identify the legacies of the revolution, uh, the question may arise, and in fact it has been addressed by my colleagues in the series uh, um, uh, before, which revolution are we actually talking about when we're talking about the revolution? And can we actually identify legacies that are connected to the revolution only and uh, not to other historical uh, events? Uh, as John has mentioned in his introductory uh, words, it is a commonplace to uh, talk about the dual, uh, the dual revolutions of 1917, of course the February Revolution that brought down the Tsarist regime, and the Bolshevik Revolution that effectively brought down the February uh, Revolution. But what is less um, um, uh, acknowledged, um, even though I think there's there's vast historical uh, relationship on the topic uh, by now, is that the revolutions of 1917 themselves were also or could be considered as legacies of uh, a previous revolutionary revolutionary event, the revolution of 1905 and 1906 in in Russia. Um, just to give you an example, uh, just one. Uh, Example, really, but that's uh, arguably one of the most prominent examples. Um, the Soviet that was established in St. Petersburg was established in 1905, uh, and it also became the most prominent institution in the revolutionary events in 1917. So, arguably, the Soviet, uh, the St. Petersburg Soviet, constitutes the most visible and, and most prominent institutional legacy that connects 1905. Uh, to 1917. So the point I'd like to make here again is that 1917 was also uh, part of a historical legacy of an earlier event, and that is 1905, the Russian Revolution of 1905 and 1906. And arguably, without the uh, revolution of 1905, uh, uh, events um, might have taken 
uh, an entirely different turn in uh, 1917. Um, now, I'd also like to highlight uh, the fact that it's very difficult to talk about uh, the legacy of the revolution uh, without mentioning other historical legacies that had an equally prominent uh, uh, impact um, on global history. Um, and here I would like to refer to the legacy or the legacies of wars and military uh, conflicts uh, in the 20th century, because I don't think they can, can be ignored when talking about the legacy or legacies of the Russian Revolution. Uh, again, going back to the Russian Revolution of 1905 and, and 1906, I mean, those revolutionary events were provoked by war, uh, and military defeat, that's the, the Russian-Japanese War of 1905 and 1906. Well, if we take the examples further, it was of course, uh, as well known, the First World War uh, that led to the outbreak of the February <coughs> Revolution, so the revolution took place in the context of the war, uh, and it was the, the, the context of the war uh, 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 in which the, the terrorist regime collapsed. But it is also difficult, in fact impossible, to talk about the legacy of the Bolshevik takeover in October 1917 without mentioning the Civil War, of course. In fact, one could argue, and many, uh, of course, more prominent scholars than I have argued before, uh, it was not just the Bolshevik takeover, but also the Civil War uh, that, uh, that led to the creation and the consolidation of the Civil War. So again, war and revolution together uh, contributed to the emergence of a new type of authoritarian re uh, regime in the early 1920s. Um, it was yet another war, and that's the Second World War, and, and which arguably is also historical legacy of the First World War, but let's not go there, uh, well not today at least. So it was yet another war uh, that led to the exportation of the revolution uh, and revolutionary institutions uh, from the Soviet Union, Soviet Union to Eastern Europe. And it was the Second World War that effectively marked uh, the beginning of the global spread of communism. So here again, it is very difficult to talk about, again, the spread of the revolution and the legacy of the revolution without mentioning another military conflict, uh, a major, uh, major military conflict, the Second World War. So it is not by accident that uh, the prominent historian Tony Jott conceptualized the second half of the 20th century uh, as post-war and, uh, and not as uh, post-revolution. All right, um, so I would argue, um, as I've argued before, I think, um, but I'd just like to reiterate my point that um, the Russian, the legacy of the Re Russian Revolution is inseparable from the legacies of major military conflicts um, in 20th century uh, Europe. So I would argue that we cannot really talk about the legacy of the revolution without mentioning the legacies of other major historical events in this particular case, wars. All right, um, now the second point uh, that I'd like to make um, is um, in relation to the legacy of the revolution is um, to what extent, um, oh, oh right, I'm going to speed up then. Uh, so, um, so the legacy of the revolution is further complicated by the fact that it is not quite clear when the revolution actually ended. Uh, when did the revolution end uh, and when does legacy actually begin? Did the revolution end with the Bolshevik takeover in 1917? There were certainly people who argued that the Bolshevik takeover was not part of the revolution. In fact, the Bolsheviks suppressed the revolution. Uh, can the Stalinist episode be included in the history of the revolution? 
again, historians have famously argued, you have expected, uh, amongst others, that the Stalin Stalinist episode was indeed uh, part of the of the revolution, of the history of the Russian Russian Revolution. But if we include Stalinism in the history of the Re Russian Revolution, can we uh, include the Sovietization of Eastern Europe uh, in the history of the Re Russian Revolution? Can the expansion of the Soviet sphere of influence and the implementation of the Stalinist political package in a range of different <coughs> countries be described by the notion of revolution? Communists certainly argued at the time that they were furthering the uh, interests of the revolution or the goals of the revolution, but one could argue that they were merely acting according to Soviet imperial uh, interests. And if the communist takeovers in Eastern Europe were part of the revolution, then how do we conceptualize the wake of unrests and uprisings that took place after the death of Stalin in 1953 and 1956. After all, the, the social base of those unrest were the working class, um, uh, the working class in the name of which the communists actually uh, claimed uh, to rule. And this, this paradox actually did not go unnoticed, and, and, and I would argue that this is the reason why 1953 and 1956 caused the first major conceptual crisis in the history of the notion of the revolution. But if 1956 uh, marked the pinnacle of destalinization, did it also mean the end of the revolution? Workers, actually, in 1953 and 1956, worker protesters uh, and rebels, had very similar demands to the workers of 1917. Uh, in fact, many workers who protested against the communist regime and in fact revolted against the communist regime described themselves as socialists. So socialism was not necessarily discredited, but the regime, the communist regime, uh, was. So how do we deal with this paradoxical situation at the conceptual level? Well, let me take this uh, a little bit further, and I can skip a few sections uh, here. 1989, the, the collapse of the communist regime was also described um, as, uh, as a revolutionary uh, event by the people who took place, although there were very little revolutionary well, there, were, there were very few events that could be described as revolutionary at the time. There were no, well, with a few exceptions, there were no violent uh, events. And these revolutions, in fact, are often described as, as, uh, as velvet revolutions. But even conservative criticisms or conservative reactions to the post-1989 democratization process recycled the notion of the revolution arguing that 1989 was an unfinished revolution that failed to fulfill its promises. Uh, and I think, again, the paradoxical aspect of, of the notion of unfinished revolution is that the pr prominence of that notion intensified or grew over time despite the increasing time gap between the communist episode and, and, um, and the time that such utterances were, were made. So references to the unfinished uh, revolution became more and more prominent uh, in, in the late 1990s, and they are still prominent. So the notion of revolution um, still enjoys remarkable valency uh, in political uh, discourse, even though the meanings associated with the term have changed drastically over time, and the various meanings are not necessarily in harmony with, with, with each other. So, uh, But yet, I would like to highlight the importance and the prominence of the notion of, of uh, revolution in contemporary political uh, discourse, the origins of which actually go back to 1917. So what I would argue that this very prominence of the notion of re revolution is indeed the legacy of the revolution itself, if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs>
very much indeed, um, uh, 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 for I think taking it right to the heart of the subject in terms of the different understandings of revolution and, and its legacy. Um, and now, uh, obviously, um, if you'd like to talk to us. Good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Um, it's an honor to be able to speak with you on this subject. Um, I'm going to focus on uh, my area of specialization, which is uh, Soviet Ukraine. So we've gone from a very general uh, introduction to uh, a more focused analysis of, um, of these developments in the Bolshevik Revolution and the Russian Revolution in the context of, of what became Ukraine. And I'd like to begin by saying that you know, many former Soviet countries uh, commemorated the Russian Revolution with little, if any, aplomb. In Russia itself, the Communist Party held a substantial march, but the Kremlin's response was conspicuously muted. Crowds in Minsk and Bishkek were noticeably small as well. And in Turkestan, for the first time since the Soviet era, um, November 7th was not marked as an anniversary of the revolution of 1917. Instead, November 7th and 8th uh, became designated as the days of history and of commemoration of, our of their ancestors. In Ukraine, the left marked the occasion, of course, although others advocated for 1917 to be recast as the beginning of the country's first war of independence. Um, and this antipathy throughout the Soviet bloc has as much to do with, for lack of a better word, misrepresentations of the Russian Revolution as it does with the messy geopolitics of the present historical moment. Uh, the events that transpired alongside the fall of the Romanov monarchy in February 1917, the takeover of the Winter Palace by the Bolsheviks in October, and the dissolution of the Constitutional Assembly by those same Bolsheviks in January uh, 1918 are immensely significant. During that year of upheaval, uh, many divergent visions for the future were articulated throughout the Russian Empire. In the Imperial Southwest in particular, the Bolsheviks battle of monarchists, nationalists, socialists, greens, uh, anarchists over how to move forward uh, during and after the collapse of the Russian Empire. The Bolsheviks in the Ukrainian provinces were also divided amongst themselves uh, into two separate groups, the Southwestern Organization based in Kiev and the Donetsk Demirov Organization centered in Kharkiv. So with this kind of cacophony, you can only imagine what, what happens in the, in, in the years to come. As historian George Lieber notes in his book, Total Wars and the Making of Modern Ukraine in 1914 to 1954, between 1917 and 1920, the Ukrainian Central Rada, Hetman Pavlos regime, and the Central Powers uh, all created, uh, recreated, created and recreated their own visions of Ukraine from Russia's nine southwestern provinces. In order to win power in this area uh, and gather the lands lost at West Litovsk, Bolshevik leaders had to acknowledge these provinces as a single political unit potentially alienating their own supporters. All of these groups and factions, including those generated within uh, the Bolshevik Party Central, Party Central Committee, played an important role in helping to define the borders of Ukraine and the sovereignty of the future Soviet Ukrainian Republic. 
And as, as John mentioned, we started the speaker series with Lenin, James Ryan, uh, placing Leninism in the, in, in the centenary perspective. Here I would like to underscore that revolution and war were very much intertwined in his thinking, and that civil war was seen as a means of remaking societies, politically, socially, economically, with consequences that reverberate to this day. As Peter Holquist noted in his book, Making War and uh, Forging Revolution, the revolution was part of a continuum of mobilization and violence that began with World War I and extended through Russia's civil war. As such, Bolshevik political practices were anchored in Russian and European wartime measures. The violence we associate with some of Soviet policies have their origins in war, in particular the four-year period of social upheaval that engulfed the Russian Empire and was particularly fierce in the Imperial Southwest. The Ukrainian philosopher Mikhail Milakov wisely pointed out in a piece written uh, just this past November, which should make a little bit more sense given all I've described here, um, that the term Russian Revolution is in itself misleading, as it includes a number of struggles that were formative for the Bolsheviks as well as their opponents. It glosses over uh, the discussion of power-sharing arrangements uh, with, still within the context of empire, and the fact that these alternative viewpoints helped shape how the Soviet Union would eventually be constituted, organized, and governed. Federalism, regional autonomy, the right of constituent republics to secede were all part of a story in which self-determination of the small peoples of Europe and the small countries of Europe figure prominently. And these were the issues the Bolsheviks had to contend with as, uh, for the duration of the Soviet project. These issues shaped the relationships between the various republics, uh, the republics in Moscow, Republican capitals and Moscow, as well as, as the regions themselves who had to balance directives from Moscow, Republican capitals, ministries, and, 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 and other uh, actors in the Soviet Union's vast bureaucracy. So at this point, um, I'll bring it back, uh, I'll bring it into the present. Um, you've all probably heard at one point or another in the last few years that Lenin and Stalin created Ukraine. Uh, which, given what I've said to you just now, probably appears to be a gross and very clear oversimplification of the history of this region. This is a trope that endures and uh, is typically accompanied by some grumbling about how Ukrainians are ungrateful and have forgotten their past. Yet it is precisely this kind of selective engagement with the past that has skewed our understanding of the revolution, uh, the role of Ukraine and Ukrainians within it, and uh, the role of Ukraine within the larger Soviet project. Soviet Ukraine, um, uh, the territory that became Soviet Ukraine, was a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional, multicultural, and multi-linguistic space. And that vibrancy helped shape through negotiation and struggle what we've come to understand as Soviet culture um, and Soviet politics, actually. The adage that revolutions eat their own children is certainly applicable here. Ukrainian. A Soviet Ukrainian cultural, political, and economic elites were arrested and executed en masse during the Stalinist purges, which, as with most Soviet policies, were carried out with particular ferocity in Ukraine, um, and not to the exclusion uh, of the rest of the Soviet Union, but that's um, uh, important to underscore. And after Stalin's death, which, I might add, is 65 years ago to, to the day, um, Ukrainian officials and cultural intelligentsia played a central role in rebuilding and revitalizing the Soviet Union, which was devastated not only by Stalinist uh, policy,
crises by the, by the Second World War, as John mentioned. And precisely because of how Stalin managed the second largest Soviet republic when he was alive, pitting regional elites against one another so as to prevent them from uniting behind a single challenger to his authority, Ukrainian party state officials were, were able um, to take over the highest offices in the Kremlin while he was gone because they had a much more nimble and, and um, uh, more nimble approach uh, to politics. It's something they had learned over time. And I think the tendency to view Ukraine as peripheral to the center of Soviet power is, in a way, a misrepresentation of how the Soviet Union was governed, particularly under Khrushchev and Brezhnev. And selective amnesia about this period is now a factor in the region's tumultuous memory politics. For Ukrainians who would prefer to divest from this shared Soviet past, tend to place blame for the darkest episodes of the Soviet years, um, like the family genocide, also known as the Holodomor, or the, uh, the purges, squarely on the shoulders of the central authorities, not as Stalin himself. And during the upheaval in Ukraine in the winter of 2013-2014, protesters throughout the country tore down statues of Lenin and other prominent uh, figures in a wave known as the Linear Pod. Some advocated openly for a shift uh, to the Latin alphabet, the abandonment of the old calendar, and holidays uh, that were central to the Soviet uh, Union, May Day, Defender of the Fatherland Day, things like that. And these are attempts to break definitively, definitively with the Soviet past, uh, but I contend that one cannot and should not undo or forget Ukraine's place in that larger story. The fact that Ukraine is not really fully integrated into the historiography of the post-Stalin period, it's seen as too bulky, too big, too unwieldy, um, with large Republican institutions uh, of its own, which makes it a difficult point of comparison. Um, and I think all of this is a problem. In some ways, we lost the plot with Ukraine, I would say somewhere around the mid-50s, 1950s, which fosters um, gaps uh, in, the, in, in, in what we know. And although Russia inherited the bulk of the Soviet legacy, its debts, uh, its nuclear arsenal, it is not incumbent on Russia alone to carry the burdens of Soviet socialism and uh, atone or answer for the crimes committed in pursuit of the revolution. Um, the current crisis in Ukraine, uh, prompted by an event that some, some have called uh, the revolution of dignity, has encouraged scholars to go back to the beginning of the story, which I think is really important. It's clear that what we thought we knew about the reasons for the Soviet collapse and the factors shaping the post-Soviet transition um, is not enough for explaining how we got to this point. My own personal view is that uh, the war in eastern Ukraine was precipitated first and foremost uh, by uh, an unresolved crisis of infrastructure and exacerbated by an EU association agreement that many, particularly those on the left, uh, viewed as an unmitigated disaster of the document. Um, and I would say that they're probably correct in their analysis. Um, it was a trade agreement that pressed in on lingering and yet very important and sensitive economic ties between Ukraine and Russia, uh, particularly but not exclusively in the machine building sector. And um, these kinds of big changes to the built environment in Ukraine and Russia and Kazakhstan in the 1950s and 60s altered the tra trajectories of these republics tied them closer together, um, and also opened up new opportunities for their leaders. 
And not all of those ties dissipated um, after the collapse, and which leaves them all in this liminal space. And I think it's clear that the Faustian bargains of the 1990s are insufficient for explaining current events, um, much less why a war, hybrid, civil, interstate, however you define it, broke out between the two largest Soviet republics. And um, is this the violent collapse of the USSR that we were waiting for 25 years ago? I don't know. Um, but this shift back to examining the enduring impact of the Soviet period has also opened up an opportunity to reshape the historiography, particularly of the Khrushchev and Brezhnev eras, um, by understanding uh, how all these pieces fit together and how Ukraine and its leadership fits into this larger story. And this is not a quarrel between center and periphery. This is a confrontation unfolding at the core of the Soviet empire, a one that is shaped by a language and repertoire of power and protest with deep 20th century roots. And I think it's quite reasonable to argue that these roots go all the way back to the not so or not only Russian Revolution itself. And I'll just end by saying that much ink has been spilled on whether Russia ceases to be a major power without Ukraine. Uh, the famous uh, quip by Dzerzhinsky, which encapsulates that fairly, fairly succinctly, uh, he says, quote, it cannot be stressed enough that without Ukraine, Russia ceases to be an empire, but with Ukraine uh, subordinated, suborned and then subordinated, Russia automatically becomes an empire, end quote. My hope is that with these very brief remarks that I've given that, that causes you to question some of what, uh, <laughs> to question that analysis, and also um, that we remember that the Bolshevik Revolution, as Balash noted, was forged in the crucible of war, and that revolutionaries struggled mightily to overcome the political, national, and social contradictions in the empire's southwestern borderlands, and really with only partial success uh, for the entire duration of the Soviet project. And uh, Jane asked me just to say um, the, uh, a word about the exhibition, War and Revolution, Framing 100 Years of Cultural Opposition in Ukraine, and we explore a lot of these themes uh, visually through images produced by artists um, who struggle to reform socialism and also uh, several uh, contemporary photographers who are photographing um, various dimensions of the crisis in Ukraine today. Thank you. so far, the language in which the Bolsheviks themselves would have explained things, which was the dialectic, and Marxism, uh, Leninism, has, has, has in a sense not even figured. It's something to be explained, but, but uh, again, over the past 30 years, it simply slipped out as a kind of, as, as, as a means of explaining. And I think, amongst other things, obviously what you've done is you've introduced the notion of empire, and this kind of paradox that in a revolution which was based on the language of class, in fact, it inherited an imperial framework which it had to reinterpret, but to do so by negotiating the space of nations and even nation-states within it. And there we have, as well as the question of revolution and its heritage, the question whether we're also looking at a new, a novel form of empire. Molly Fuji, over to you. So 
Um, thank you very much, John, um, for the introduction. Um, I took the idea of legacy a little more literally. Um, so what do we see today that we can sort of bring back to the revolution, which we can understand, uh, better understand Russian politics, the very, very confusing uh, thing that is Russian politics today. Uh, so as you might have noticed, uh, if you read the newspaper, Russia has been in the news a lot lately, a lot. Um, uh, Russia has been accused of, among other things, um, you can just read this at your ledger, I just randomly selected, uh, but there's, you know, lots of, uh, lots of news on this today. Uh, among other things, meddling in other countries' elections, manipulating the social media through bots and troll farms, which flood the media with fake or misleading information, uh, cutting backroom deals with politicians to ensure pro-Russian policies are represented, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, for those of, those of us who, like myself, uh, have made the dubious career choice of becoming historians of communist intelligence services, uh, these recent re revelations, I would say, are not actually really very surprising or new. Um, not only because Vladimir Putin himself, I think as is well known, uh, was formerly a KGBshnik, um, he was formerly a professional KGB officer. Uh, well trained in the methods of the service, well stationed in East Germany in the 1980s, and the service of the foreign intelligence branch in particular. Um, as we also know from the four, few KGB materials we have, uh, the archives, as you can imagine, are closed, are very, very closed. Um, we have some materials on the activities of the foreign intelligence branch of the KGB, the first department, uh, that had been smuggled to Great Britain by a former KGB archivist, Vasily Mitrokin, and this is the Mitrokin archive, this is basically uh, the materials we have uh, held at Cambridge University on the sort of you know, Russian intelligence operations abroad, KGB intelligence agents. Uh, so the Mitrokin archive tells us that uh, Western Europe and the United States have long been targets of KGB operations. This is, again, nothing new. Uh, with respect to the United States in particular, uh, KGB agents sought since the 1960s and 1970s uh, to stoke race relations um, in the United States itself, uh, to create domestic discord, undermine the authority of popular figures such as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, generally the integrity of the civil rights movement, undermine faith in the CIA, uh, apparently playing a key role in associating the CIA with the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, the CIA was generally a target of, of uh, KGB misinformation campaigns. So what I want to argue here is that this is not only that such methods are not new, um, this is sort of, you know, we, we've known this from the Cold War um, um, period, that this has been long um, underway, but actually they really cannot be understood without placing the roots of Russian intelligence in the context of the Russian Revolution in which it was first created. Uh, so specifically I want to highlight uh, one aspect of the revolution that I think is key to understanding these types of tactics and their emergence. Um, so this was the conviction in, you know, that the Russian Revolution would not just be limited to Russia, um, and several you know, of our panelists have talked about this, but it would be the first in a series of revolutions that would break out throughout the rest of Europe and ultimately the world. It was supposed to be the first in a series of global revolutions. Uh, this was not only sort of a utopian scheme, 
it was seen as a fundamental part of the security of the new uh, Russian socialist state. It was non-negotiable. Uh, this is, you know, initially, um, according to the Bolsheviks, it was a key issue of national security. The Russian Revolution would not survive unless similar revolutions were carried out abroad. Um, and so this conviction makes its way into the nature of the Soviet and Russian security and intelligence services. Uh, so again, sort of idea of spreading the world revolution. So there were really two, after the revolution, you know, the first, uh, with the first Bolshevik Chipka, uh, two sort of, I guess, directions uh, for Soviet intelligence. And that was, the first was to, in that, you know, fight against domestic enemies, so the civil war, as we talked about, the war for power at home, the class enemies, uh, the whites, the sort of, you know, all of the um, sort of enemies within the context of the Civil War. But the second was to spread revolution abroad, particularly through international communist organizations such as the Comintern, created in March 1919. So this idea of spreading revolution abroad, which entailed, you know, within other countries, uh, creating conditions uh, of chaos, of unrest, fomenting strikes, arming workers, basically fomenting revolution in other countries, um, inherently destabilizing them and creating the conditions for them to carry out revolutions, communist revolutions. Um, in other words, to turn societies against themselves. You know, not, this was not thought of as a traditional military takeover. It was thought of as fomenting the conditions of revolution and to bring about uh, communist societies abroad, and I think this really very, very much informs Russian strategies and the logic of the intelligence services today, it's destabilizing quality. Uh, so to take an example from the earliest years of this sort of intelligence operations, uh, one of the first targets was, of course, Germany, uh, which was a linchpin state in the 1920s, of course, one most popular, um, and where the revolution should have actually, uh, in, in, in the view of Marx, been carried out. Uh, so the Comintern and its intelligence networks sought to instigate worker strikes, unrest, uh, armed workers to spread propaganda in the early 1920s, uh, stoke domestic class tensions, spread turmoil, the propaganda they spread uh, abroad uh, very much um, was supposed to uh, bring about domestic um, tensions. And in other words, create the conditions they believed would lead the German workers to carry out their own revolution. Um, so as we know, in the 1920s, these efforts were not successful. Germany, like many other countries, slipped to the radical right instead of the radical left. Uh, but the Soviets, of course, were more successful in Eastern Europe after the Second World War, uh, when they, in practice, dominated the region militarily. Uh, but also, while they were moving through the region on their way to Berlin, uh, used their security and intelligence services to very much change the politics of the region. Um, and an important component of this was to foment domestic revolutions um, in Europe. So while the communist takeover of Eastern Europe has commonly been seen as a Soviet military takeover, I think this picture of, of the takeover is deeply misleading. Um, it had a very important revolutionary component, um, fomenting revolution in these countries, um, co-opting local agents to foment unrest, confusion, spread propaganda, um, encourage locals themselves to carry the revolution into their own communities. They overturn hierarchies uh, as they move through the region um, and bring about, they brought about a whole host of deeply transformative processes that in my view can only be rightly considered domestic revolutions. 
Uh, just to take Poland as an example, um, the Soviet NKVD and, and the Russian military uh, openly spread social disorder by handing weapons uh, to locals, to workers, peasants, um, um, and they manipulated the sort of supposedly democratic elections uh, in 1946, for example, they had a special department of the um, Soviet MGD, uh, which was actually dedicated to the manipulation of elections. That is what the department did. It was called Department D, and it was specialized in the falsification of election <coughs> ballots and signatures. Um, they traveled to Poland in 1946 and quite literally um, falsified uh, fake election ballots. So. Uh, the Soviets have been doing this for quite a while. Um, they spread pamphlets advocating class struggle that genuinely spread domestic unrest against former um, elites. Uh, they stoked national tensions. Uh, they would turn Poles against Ukrainians, Ukrainians against Poles. Um, they would use these, these tensions within the security services, um, stoke anti-Semitism, among other things. Um, and so this process has been called by historian Jan Gross, who studied it in particular actually after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in 1939, so not after the war, uh, but it's been called revolution from abroad, a seemingly contradictory uh, state, but that idea of the way that they fomented and manipulated um, the, the sort of local politics and changed the local politics in actually very, very covert um, ways many times. Okay, so why does this matter? Um, so the Soviets have always, always used not only military force, but extensive behind-the-scenes covert efforts to spread disorder abroad. This is, again, I think, a legacy of the revolution. Um, on a logistical level, Soviet and current Russian strategy consists of three main tactics. Uh, this is ref they're referred to in KGB lexicon as active measures, aktivni meripriatia, and the, the concept of active measures uh, differentiates them from sort of passive surveillance operations, right? So they're not just collecting intelligence, they're actually intervening, intervening in the, in the domestic politics of other countries in a variety of ways. Um, so they consist of three main tactics, um, one of which, and these are just from the KGB lexicons, it's like their own words. Uh, so one of them is called disorganization, disorganizatia, and this is the attempt to undermine order, instigate rallies, uprisings, um, and other things. Uh, so again, we saw this sort of throughout, uh, throughout Soviet history, but uh, trend societies against one another. In the US, for example, uh, they organized mass rallies in favor of Trump, marches, protests. Uh, they actually favored, um, as well as Donald Trump, Bernie Sanders, who was seen as a disruptive candidate, right? It doesn't matter the right or the left, uh, it's seen as a candidate of disruption who would create disorder. Um, disinformation, disinformatia, is the confusion and overwhelming, uh, the creation of fake information uh, that's attempted to sort of distract uh, from, um, from the truth, misdirect. Um, and there's a lot of you know, instances of them creating sort of pro propaganda um, in various ways. Um, it can be aimed at destroying someone's reputation or spreading doubt about his or her integrity. I think Hillary Clinton was a good example, victim of this particular tactic. And the continued exploitation of social splits. So this is class, national, or social tensions. Uh, in the case of the US, um, the Russian bots and trolls uh, focused on issues that were seen of as divisive. They divided American society. They were hot button issues, gun control, abortion, race, religion, 
all of these issues were the focus of these you know, disinformation and propaganda campaigns. It was seen as in part distracting people from the real issues, but also in part dividing them, you know, polarizing, in a sense, uh, society. So, of course, obviously a fundamental difference is they're not trying today to spread communism abroad, uh, but they are seeking to have the U.S. destroy itself, in my opinion, uh, to eliminate it as a power on the world stage and eliminate Western Europe as well. There's campaigns uh, going on across Western Europe. And so doing so, in doing so, increase Russia's relative power and influence geopolitically. I think new forms of social media have certainly given the Russians the ability to reach new audiences. We obviously have seen um, this with Facebook and, and Twitter. And I think in the coming wars, we're going to see cyber warfare, information wars, become new frontiers for this international conflict, the sort of continuation of the Cold War. Um, and currently, these these forms of warfare are kind of a wild west. There's few regulation, there's few laws. Uh, if you talk to people at Google, at Facebook, uh, you know, Google is making up the, the, the rules as they go along. There's no sense of what this type of warfare will look like. Um, although it's the extent of Russian intelligence interference in U.S. and Western politics is, in my opinion, and, and from what we can tell, uh, and we don't really know, this is all covert operations, uh, it's probably the most extensive it's been in history. Uh, so I would argue that the Russian intelligence services, like all intelligence services, uh, have a history and have learned from history. Um, and its goals and definitely its methods, um, I think, have to be tra traced back to that original drive from the 1920s to export revolution abroad, to create social disorder. Um, and the very roots of the Soviet intelligence service after the second Russian Revolution in October 1917. Thank you. Thank you very much, Molly, for a, a, a wonderful portrait of the key aspect of the, uh, of the Bolshevik state. And that, uh, one answer, I think, Balash, to your question as to whether post-45 in Eastern Europe is or isn't part of the revolution or the Alexei revolution, but here you're suggesting really very much revolution from above and <coughs> revolution um, uh, from, from, from abroad. Mm -hmm. Judith, uh, can I ask you, Judith Devlin, to conclude uh, the panelists' presentations for well, I'm afraid, unlike um, Balash, who started very sensibly by considering what we mean by legacy, I, I didn't mean to say, think about this. Um, and if, as Molly has just been showing us, uh, we can look continuities in Russian state practice, for example, disinformation, etc., it is perhaps worth noting off passant that there has been no great enthusiasm uh, for the revolution in contemporary Russia. Mr. Putin doesn't like the word revolution. For him, it means orange revolution, as in Ukraine, uh, pink, the color revolutions uh, that have been seen by him as essentially fomented by hostile powers. Revolution isn't a nice idea, and therefore perhaps it comes as no surprise to us um, that well, even before this, that the, the 7th of November is no longer celebrated as once it was, as the foundational day of the Soviet states, being replaced by a uh, similar date, but uh, with a different location. Uh, and that, of course, there has been not, no equivalent to the way we have celebrated 1916 as a foundational date of the 
of the Irish state, there's sort of no, no sort of public commemoration of the 1917 revolution in Russia today. We might ask, uh, explore why a little bit more to come back to perhaps, uh, as I hoped to at the end, John's point about ships like Svetlana Sage and uh, sort of ostagy <laughs> for the Soviet state. So to come back a little bit to the concepts uh, we're meant to be addressing, the legacy of the revolution obviously was bound up not only with the impact of the Soviet state on world politics, but also with the meanings ascribed to the revolution by different generations at different times and places. Um, that's to say, its influence and appeal were not limited by the realities of the Soviet state, with its many inevitable and avoidable shortcomings, but were to some extent facilitated by the ways in which the revolution was misunderstood and imagined. And so I want to talk a little bit about understandings of revolution, in fact, understandings by historians. Uh, misapprehensions broader, in the broader public are hardly surprising, and even academics in ivory towers have struggled to capture what the revolution entailed and meant. And I want to talk a little bit about simply, because I think, I haven't seen that in the series, actually there's been a sort of, a, this has actually been discussed much, I'm sure it's been implicit either. Um, but historians essentially, in turning their attention again to the revolution, have uncovered its complexity and fluidity um, in relation to the diversity of what revolution meant even to its participants is the subject of much recent and interesting work. And we can think of historians like Mark Steinberg and uh, Boris Kalinitsky, for example, or Orlando Fages, too, on the language of revolution. Uh, it meant very many. It was misunderstood in the uh, political discourse. How far did that get through to the masses? With difficulty, it seems. And there were competing agendas. Um, the title of this session hints at a rather in traditional interpretation of the revolution, one which stressed the gap between its quasi-millenarian ideals and its tragic, supposedly, or arguably, uh, tragic and destructive outcome. Um, without wishing to challenge the reality of its utopian and violent dimensions, it's perhaps worth noting that our understanding of the revolution has changed in the last 15 to 20 years. We will understand that. Once we start with the fall of the monarchy, uh, in February 1917, passing on to the Bolshevik seizure of power in October and the desperate struggle for the survival of the revolutionary power, uh, which ensued during the course of the Civil War. And this was an approach that tended to emphasize personalities and ideologies, with the emphasis on Lenin's revolutionary script and the way it supposedly played out uh, in the events that followed. And it tended to focus on the capitals where the main actors took the revolutionary stage and where political power was centered. Even when the dramatis personae was expanded to consider the role of workers and soldiers, Pietrograd was still assumed to provide the template for the revolution as it unfolded elsewhere. Only more recently has work on developments in the provinces and on, excuse me, Alicia, periphery of empire, <laughs> perhaps not, periphery is the wrong term, but anyway, we call it periphery of empire at the moment, reveal the extent of which the revolution diverged from the central pattern how variously revolution was understood, how many different meanings and agendas were pursued under its ages. And this, it seems to me, is part of the reason why it has a, a, a broader appeal in the end. Now, more recently, obviously, the time frame has expanded beyond 1917. Indeed, uh, for some historians, when they write about the revolution, they're looking at from the period from 1905 on, the whole revolutionary era, right up, of course, to the Stalin Revolution. Um, and, of course, because of Context is vital. Uh, in this sense, uh, more recently, historians have emphasized the importance, as Balash did, of the First World War, and we could uh, 
prolonged that to the Second World War, for the strains it placed not only in the traditional sense on economy and society or in discrediting the monarchy, uh, but also because it introduced very violent practices, state practices, uh, into civilian life, into everyday life, and the experience of ordinary people. Um, because of waves of refugees, uh, it engendered several million of them by 1917 uh, into but to, um, a relatively uh, say, homogenous kind of uh, and completely unprepared uh, reception areas. And we only to think of, uh, say, last year in Germany, um, to uh, last year, the last couple of years in Germany, to see how destabilizing flows of refugees are. So one of the effects of this, of course, was to uh, exacerbate uh, inter-ethnic tensions, uh, to promote uh, national consciousness, um, and uh, in, this was an ultimately, even before the revolution, this was to have consequences which played out subsequently and are part of the revolutionary drive, ultimately, we might say, uh, in the, uh, in subsequently in what was the former empire. So from 1917 and the disintegrating former empire, the self-determination espoused by Lenin and his colleagues was to hasten the development of nationalist movements, some demanding and even achieving independence. And in fact, I very much like Elisa's point about the Russian Revolution as a misnomer. And I thought this was an extremely interesting uh, point. It was a very various, complex event. In fact, the Bolshevik Revolution was to be caught between the twin impulses of the strengthening uh, of strengthening the Soviet state and its anti-imperialism. For of course, the revolution was never intended to be a revolution merely on a national scale. As Molly pointed out, it aimed to be a worldwide revolution, uh, and the Soviet uh, state was to attempt to lead, as Steve Smith uh, outlined in his contribution to the series, a global revolution, and to sponsor, if inconsistently, uh, for most of its existence, militant anti-imperialism abroad, uh, even if its anti-imperialism at home was limited by pragmatic uh, considerations. Uh, however, we should also note uh, as Terry but, you know, pointed to Terry Martin's work, it was also because of the affirmative action empire. It actually, in the 1920s and beyond, uh, introduced state policies which actually tend to bolster and develop national sentiment, uh, with, of course, ultimately uh, effects that were unintended. Now, the question of the longer-term uh, <coughs> legacy of the revolution begs, begs the question of how it's understood not only at the time, but thereafter, after the end of the Civil War. And I'd suggest this, we should consider this under two headings. On one level, uh, it's, it's symbolic significance, and on the other, the more practical uh, aspects of it. On the one hand, there was what John was talking about earlier, uh, the revolutionary dream or the revolutionary text. And by text here, I mean not so much the ideological writings of Marx, uh, Trotsky, and others, though, of course, these played a role, um, but more the revolution as it was imagined, a story encapsulating the dreams, or alternatively, the nightmares, uh, of several generations. Uh, for others, until about 1956, the revolution meant the incarnation of the revolutionary idea in the Soviet state, as it was formed by Lenin and Stalin. So uh, the revolution, both in Russian tradition and in the heady years of 1917, we're thinking of it as you know, utopia, that end of things. Um, it meant emancipation, it meant a whole variety of things, freedom, equality, justice, self-rule by the laboring people, not necessarily the same thing, of course, as democracy, and for Marxists, the end of capitalist imperialist exploitation. And we might see the old Bolsheviks uh, who sort of continue up until about the mid-1930s as one incarnation of that. But furthermore, it went much beyond that, and I think 
uh, in relation to Justin's uh, talk, and John mentions this earlier, uh, the revolution, of course, uh, really wasn't meant to be just a political, economic, social revolution in the rather conventional sense that we might associate with the French Revolution. This was a revolution that went much further. It was meant to not only even change cultural life, it was meant to revolutionize humankind, the almost human nature in a very literal sense, the way people lived, the way people dressed, the way they were housed, uh, the way they thought. Uh, this was a really all-encompassing uh, revolution. Um, during the Civil War, when the economy collapses, when uh, the currency collapses, for example, the, the fact that the, the, the ruble is valueless is seen by some, welcomed by some as the end of hated money, the era, you know, a new, you know, sort of socialist, communist era has come, you can do without money. Um, the place of women is, women is completely reimagined in very radical ways, and it's something that continues throughout the 1920s. At least there is a tension between legislation on the one hand, which is, is far in advance of most other countries at the time, and the way it's actually playing out in reality. And of course, John was talking about artists, uh, people like Manier, Richard Rodschenko, etc. They spend their time not merely uh, painting pictures or well, you know, sort of conceptual art, they move to things like um, designing clothes, um, architects are, are designing um, houses, you know, collective houses houses in which people live this new collectivist life. So you have a small amount of private space, but otherwise you will share common dining rooms, uh, common laundries, etc. So it has to be a, a, a completely different way of living. And it, this really matters. Now often this is often seen, this utopianism, as being very short-lived, as being snuffed out by Stalin and Stalinism. And so one point I'd like to put to you is, you know, should we see Stalin as the, as Trotsky always portrayed, as the hangman of the revolution? Uh, Trotsky as being the Bonaparte. You know, Trotsky talks about the Thermidor, which is Stalinism. Is this the right way of looking at it? Um, so I'll come back to this in a minute, but I think that's one point that we should perhaps uh, discuss. Does the utopianism, as conventionally said, just disappear? Does it still have some valency? Um, if the vein of thought, that vein of thought and aspiration was arguably gradually eclipsed at home, for reasons we might explore later, I suggest. Uh, the revolution as a romantic dream was to enrapture future generations, as it was reinterpreted in the late, later 1950s and 1960s, after the death of Stalin, um, with young radicals seeking inspiration, not only from the Soviet Union, but from Cuba, China, from Trotsky, and to a lesser extent, from a supposedly purified Lenin. Uh, so, utopia, is always there and it's important, important. Uh, and then there is the question of the revolutionary state, uh, the revolution as embodied by the Soviet state. And it was a rather less heady ideal, perhaps, particularly at home. But I think as um, one of our speakers now escapes me who <laughs> pointed out uh, that the Stalin's program of crash industrialization and violent collectivization is sometimes seen, notably by Sheila Fitzpatrick, as completing the revolution's aim of social, cultural, and economic transformation. And while it's quite easy to dismiss this by pointing to the appalling human cost, the tragedies, the trauma, and the incredible upheaval uh, that this uh, entailed, it's unquestionable, one, that it forms the basis of Soviet state thereafter. This is the foundation on which society, economy, the politics uh, work. You know, it's in inconceivable. Secondly, although some historians, and again, that's a point we might discuss, uh, say, um, writers like Solzhenitsyn, for example, say, Stalinism, and of course, this is the argument of the thaw of those who tried to you know, invent 
um, uh, socialism was a human face in the 1960s. Stalinism was an aberration. Stalinism did not owe anything to Lenin. Um, well, there is the Stalin-Lenin connection, which we could think, was he, was he indebted to Lenin? I view, of course, he was, and to the political structures Lenin put in place, yes. But is there an element, although Stalin was often, uh, and he didn't like it, uh, projected uh, initially 1920s as a practic, you know, a man of you know, common sense, not one of these self-indulgent scribblers like Trotsky. Um, in fact, uh, Sam not only wanted to be seen as an intellectual, and arguably was uh, to some extent, but what, you know, was, he, was Stalin to some extent a utopian? And therefore, does the Stalin revolution have a utopian dimension? It seems to me it might be worth thinking about the fact that A, Stalinism had its supporters. It did succeed in giving crash education to people from working class and peasant backgrounds. It promoted them into managerial positions. Uh, it staffed its uh, uh, burgeoning Soviet bureaucracy that ran the state and economy with people who had hitherto had very um, you know, modest roles in life who would never have had that kind of status or the very many privileges that went, of course, with being part of the Soviet elite. So, uh, Schiff, as Patrick points to the fact, yes, well, he had, uh, had supporters, and a very considerable number of them. And then there's also the appeal to youth, and the fact, um, a very interesting vein of historiography, which is pointing to uh, the way in which people tried to internalize uh, the appeals and the messages of the Stalin revolution. Uh, and the fact it's clear that many people did feel uh, that they were part of a great movement to reforge the world, to actually make this revolution a reality after that you know, staging point, um, step backwards, if you like, in the 1920s, the pause for breath that the 1920s was. So we, we, I'm aware of times, so I don't want to. Um, chatter on too much. But I, I do think, of course, it's important to, to note that the inter internationally the Soviet Union um, uh, became a beacon for the largely disparate, uh, disparate forces of the left, uh, especially in its immediate aftermath. Back um, it was seen as promising the possibility of a wider revolution to come, a point I think that Molly was making earlier. Um, as such, of course, the Soviet state was not only incarnation of the revolution in the here and now, uh, it was also a model of the revolution and the promise of the revolution to be fulfilled in the future. As such, it, it defined the terms of politics from much of the 20th century, both on the right in the interwar period as a justification for and impulse towards uh, various forms of authoritarianism, and on the left, where it inspired the formation of communist parties throughout the world, initially principally in Europe, but also in India, Africa, and beyond. Um, China, most famously, perhaps. And as we know, with the rise of the Great Depression at the end of the 20s, early 30s, and with the rise of fascism, uh, obviously Moscow became a kind of mecca to which sympathizers on the left, uh, radicals, intellectuals, trooped to inform themselves about this other way of life. Um, so uh, that role was a very important one. Uh, Steve Smith's uh, point about the global revolution and how the fact that, again, the misunderstanding of revolution was important in enabling, enabling Russia, in a sense, and the Soviet Union to um, you know, sort of play that role. It, in other words, what revolution meant could be adapted to local circumstance when it wasn't well um, understood. Uh, I had to, wanted to talk a little bit about the post-war um, post Soviet Union, but uh, and its uh, role is obviously emerges as one of the two superpowers in the competition of power. Its role in uh, anti-imperialism is actually part of that competition that it, it, it 
takes place in. Um, I would like to sort of point out, though, really from about 1956, as, as uh, Balash says, um, essentially the reference point for these leaders in Asia and Africa is no longer really so much uh, in 1917, or even arguably uh, the, the Soviet state, but a much more broadly conceived Marxist, national, socialist, uh, or Maoist interpretation of revolution, of which 1917 is only uh, a variant. And to conclude, then, uh, we can certainly say that 1917 was a shattering event for Russia and the territories it governed, um, and that it structured political life and international affairs for much of the 20th century. Um, in, if history didn't end in 1991, as Francis Fukuyama declared, the appeal and relevance of the 19th revolution had by then already, it seems to me, disappeared. Um, it was important, of course, as a, above all, as an emotionally resonant symbol, until I would suggest perhaps the 1970s. I don't really think it's 1989 that granted, because really, by, from the post-war period on, the Soviet state was really essentially a conservative state. Um, and when we talk about somebody like Svetlana Alexeyevich, it seems to me um, that the nostalgia for the Soviet order wasn't a nostalgia for the revolution. It was a nostalgia for stability, predictability. It was a conservative kind of nostalgia, uh, really. And then we have to ask, why did it succumb? And what did it succumb to? Boredom? Consumerism? Nationalism? Okay. <laughs>